The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we greet Barbara Walsh. Hi, Barbara. Hello. Let me just run through a few of your credits at the risk of embarrassing you. Currently, you're playing the role of Joanne in the revival of Stephen Sondheim's Company on Broadway. You originated the role of Trina in Falsettos, for which you got a Tony and Drama Desk nominations and the Los Angeles Ovation Award. You were in Hairspray as Velma, Mrs. Baskin in Big, Mrs. Lyons in Blood Brothers, Francesca in Nine, and we'll talk about this one later, Grace Slick in Rock and Roll the First 5,000 Years. And Joan Baez. <laughs> and Joan Baez, too. Well, Welcome, and let's talk about company. Mm-hmm. Let's get the first big question out of the way right up front. You play the, the role of Joanne, which is the role that was originated, of course, by Elaine Stritch. That's right. And has so much uh, attached to it in terms of Elaine's performance and subsequently becoming kind of her, her theme song, The Ladies Who Lunch. How do you react to being cast in that role, and how do you get beyond people saying, oh, well, that was Elaine Stritch's role? How, how, how did you deal with that? I did it my way. I mean, really, it sounds stupid, but I, I couldn't really concern myself with what had been before, mm-hmm. even though she you know, clearly made the path um, iconic and legendary. And, I mean, it is a bear, <laughs> let's face it. Um, I'm very different from her. Uh, John and I collaborated. Um, John know, Doyle. Yes, very simply. And we just sort of had the same head about where we were going with her. Uh, and uh, he's a remarkable collaborator. I mean, the best that there is. Um, we had a wonderful time, and and I never really felt a- afraid. I mean, there were moments where I would think, uh, "Well, I don't want to do what she did," but that was fleeting. And, and and clearly, the text and the music was taking me on my own road, so I went with it. And what what? But how did you see the character? How do you and John Doyle interpret Joanne? Well, again, we didn't discuss it very much. The uh, fact that he cast me said a lot already. Yeah. And Elaine and I are sort of apples and oranges. Um, I mean, I see her as a multifaceted, fascinating human being who is the operative word being human. Um, she, I think what's fascinating is that she's, you know, dripping in wealth and she's miserable. She's a survivor. She's been married three times. She keeps trying. She is brilliantly witty and, you know, quick with the uh, the uh, zingers and the vodka stingers to boot. But, you know, there is a very tragic character there. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the ache underneath. Hearing that you were going to be playing the role in a John Doyle production, the assumption is when you're trying to differentiate yourself from what's come before, the idea that you're going to be out there playing an instrument, mm-hmm. which you're not doing. You're not. You're the. You're not an instrumentalist in the midst of the typical John Doyle style. Um, was there ever discussion of you playing more than the little bits of percussion that you do? When I came in for my audition, I explained to John that. I don't play anything, and I'm surrounded by the, all these actors with horns and tubas and whatnot. And he said, don't worry about that. And I knew going in not to worry about that. Hmm. He said, it, it probably won't be that important. 
Um, Mary Mitchell Campbell is my friend, and she orchestrated the, the show. Orchestrator musical right, right, did a yep. stunning job. And I ran into her in our neighborhood, and I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "I'm going to Cincinnati to orchestrate this production by the Sweeney Todd director, John Doyle um, of Company." And um, I was so happy for her. I was like, oh, that's an amazing break for you. Who's doing Joanne? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she said, we don't know yet. And I said, but I don't play an instrument. She said, it may not be important. With that, two days later, I have the appointment. So what? Was that a specific choice that she was not going to play an instrument? I think so. You say you didn't talk a lot about the character, but but was... Was there anything in terms of why she would be held aside? Certainly, Raul does not play an instrument until very, very late in the very show. Intentional, very intentional, yes. conscious choice. Right, Any right. discussion of, of why this character um, isn't, isn't playing along either? Uh, no, but, I mean, I have my... You know, it were. I think it works. I think visually, she's sort of holding up the set, or the set is holding her up, and she always has her eye on Bobby. And... Uh, you know, I think there's something about her just sauntering around the stage with a sexy walk, just with dead eyes, kind of in this, you know, beautiful, glamorous outfit and whatnot. And we all know that in the second act, her moment's coming up. And But be- prior to that, she's on stage the whole time. So we are all observers of each other's work and each other's scenes and characters and whatnot. Um, I think, you know, her signature instrument is the triangle, and it has an arc. It begins, and it has a, a denouement, and then it has a little uh, epilogue at the end. You know, it, 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 and, but, so that's um, one of, of many percussive instruments. And then the glockenspiel is the bane of my existence, but <clears throat> I'm working on it. It's getting better. It's a very exposed uh, instrument and um, you know I mean it's kind of hilarious that you have this dark human being with a triangle you know or playing a light you know exposed pingy sort of glockenspiel I think that's funny but you do uh, play that triangle very well well thank you <laughs> you know as I was sitting watching the show it's gotten and better. now thinking about it in, in retrospect it's to me almost as though the, the character of Joanne would not lower herself to play an instrument like everybody else. She well, is kind she'd of be, like she's a, a little lazy. And, yeah, a little you know, lazy and a little, little lazy snotty and, and, and not going to put a whole lot of effort into yeah, it. Yeah. So hence the sort of mallet, and you know what I mean. And I didn't think about these things; mm-hmm. they just sort of evolved with with mm-hmm. her as as she grew from me. But uh, um, I mean, I think visually, John works. You know, collaborates with all the designers and with Anne Hould Ward and the look. For Joanne, like someone said to me earlier today, it's such a different look. It doesn't even look like you, and it's so different for Joanne. And I said, well, it's a different production. And and I think the the image or the visual of my Joanne fits very well in this production. Well, for the radio audience, what is the, the look of Joanne? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know because I've never seen the show. All I know is Elaine Stritch in the documentary recording of Ladies Who Lunch, which is completely legendary and, and fascinating. Um, I and she is a different type physically from me, thankfully, mm-hmm. because then I, you know, I it made it easier for me to let her go and do my own thing. And when I met her, when she came to the show, she could not have been more generous. She mm-hmm. was lovely. We've actually had an interview for the New Yorker together, which mm-hmm. is coming out some point this year, I hope. But um, she and she was hilarious, amazing timing, and and really, really. Great. She but, was but, great. But what is your look for Joanne? How, what how, is my how, look? Yeah, how are you dressed? How is your hair? My, my hair is, I'm wigged. I have a sort of severe 
<clears throat> beautiful brunette wig that's straight and elegant. And your real and life hair is rather curly. It I've got like. short curly hair. I've yeah. always been a curly top. Um, and so my own hair for Cincinnati was longer, and they blew it out to have this hair uh, design. And so when I was wigged for New York, they basically follow that same design. Uh, and my clothes are very elegant, and there's some sparkle, but it's very tasteful. It's not ostentatious. But there's a lot of bling in the <laughs> outfit, and uh, the shoes are, you know, severe. And uh, I think Anne did a remarkable job um, for my body. She's We've worked together before. We did falsettos. And, um, you know, I just think it's a really striking look for Joanne. I think I think she's sexy. Now, you mentioned before about uh, meeting with John Doyle, and you said <clears throat> you had an appointment, not an audition. Did you have to audition for the Cincinnati role? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. I did. And I was happy to because I didn't know him, and I, where I hadn't seen Sweeney yet, I was going to, I'd heard the most phenomenal things about him. And uh, in the audition, you know, he was he was really lovely, and uh, he made me he he liked what I did with the song. And he said, "Now do it again and look at me, and sing the whole first verse as Masha." And what, what song did you do? Oh, Lady Solange. You did the song. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, as Masha, and I'm like Masha. So I'm mourning. He said, "Yes, you're in mourning." I'm like, "Okay." So I'm Joanne in mourning. He said, "Yes." He said, "And the and and, and look at me." I said, "So I'm uh-huh. looking at you right now." Mm-hmm. And I. Hate doing that in auditions. <laughs> it's agony. I'm like, don't want to want to look at the people I'm auditioning for. I want to look right above. So, but I did it anyway, and uh, it just simplified. I, I know he was trying to get me to take everything down to its simplest form, and which I did. And, and that day, I get home, and my agent said, "What did you do?" I said, "What are you talking about? Would you sing the song?" I said, "Yeah. Well, you're going to get an offer." I went, "Really? Hmm. That's lovely." Hmm. So everything you know followed from there, and happily enough. So I haven't why, heard it. why don't you set up the Can't song, wait. how it works in the show, and then we'll play the, the cut by you. Okay. Um, the song takes place in a bar, and Bobby and I have been throwing them back. So there is some uh, influence from the alcohol. Um, and particularly in my direction, she's becoming very broad and uh, somewhat abrasive and um, uh, sarcastic, particularly to the audience. And but, but her her behavior is definitely erratic, and she's like a little, you know, flipped, drunk. <laughs> she's drunk, and uh, she's sort of yelling at the audience. She's yelling at the people around her, and that kicks her into, "I'd like to propose a toast." And what she's doing in the song is breaking the fourth wall theatrically and talking to the entire audience. Uh, Here's to the ladies who lunch. Um, and aren't they ridiculous until she sees herself at one point and then that changes the song and it becomes a little darker and more intense because she's really talking about herself and then it explodes into this sort of terrifying place at the end and it's fabulous (laughs) Barbara, when you went to do this show in Cincinnati this was a show for the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park this was not planned for Broadway what was the experience of being out in Cincinnati and the buzz beginning largely because of a New York Times review? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we all knew from the first day of rehearsal when John presented himself and how he works in that uh, meet and greet and and how what his approach was going to be. We knew we were in something extremely special. 
And we knew that there was potential for a transfer because of the Sweeney, Sweeney Todd success. Um, when the review came out, we were all just very hopeful and very excited and, and hoping that we would know one way or the other before our run was up in Cincinnati. That was sort of important to us so there wouldn't be months of hanging around in New York waiting for the phone to ring. And sure enough, uh, we did find out before we, uh, before we closed, Richard Frankel, our head producer, came out and took us all out for a drink at the place called the Blind Lemon, this fabulous place where you drink outside in front of a, a fireplace. And it, it, it was a lovely uh, location uh, for a couple of months only. Um, I, I mean, you know, I would kill to go back there. Ed Stern and Buzz Ward are awesome, and they run the place. And the other work that was going on at the time our show was going on was superb work. And for a regional theater, when all the theaters are full of superb work, you just go, wow, it's, it's a really remarkable thing. Uh, so it, it was a delightful experience on, on every level. And the fact that we ended up on Broadway makes it even sweeter. Well, I have to parallel this with a show out of our common experience, which was the experience of Falsettos up at Hartford. And we're, we're doing an installments here on Downstage Center, discussions of that show. Grazi's been with us. Bill yeah. Finn has been with us. Yeah. But but it was a very different dynamic for you in the Falsettos at Hartford, where, again, the buzz began mm-hmm. about the show, again, thanks mm-hmm. in that case to a New York Times review. But your experience was was different on that one. Can you can you talk to people about that? Yeah, I I mean, what is similar is that these are breakout performances in my twenty six years of being in New York, and they both originated in regional theater. That's where they're they're similar. Um, for falsettos at Hartford Stage, Graziella was the first director to combine March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land in a really stunning production in nineteen ninety one in the fall of ninety one. Um, uh, enormous buzz, enormous Frank Rich review, and et cetera, et cetera. And it was supposed to come into the Beaumont um, for the spring. And because of a scheduling snafu or personality snafu, I have no idea. I've heard many stories, though. Um, you know, it, it did not take place. So I get a call from Andre Bishop, head of uh, Lincoln Center, saying, I'm so sorry, but because of our scheduling conflicts, we're not going to be able to do this. So sorry. Um, But the Weislers are going to produce uh, the James Lapine production of Falsettos in the spring. Fran and Barry Weisler. That's right, Fran and Barry Weisler. And I thought, well, that's great, um, but that doesn't really affect me. They'll probably use, you know, Alison Frazier or or Faith Prince, who originated the role um, off-Broadway, you know, apart from each other. And and he said, no, well, you never know. So 10 minutes later, Fran Weisler calls and says, well, you're really wonderful in the part. Would you like to be on board? And I said, well, is this an offer? And she said, well, it will be tomorrow. And then, and then that's how that happened. I had an incredible experience of, of knowing those two very different experiences, Graziella's and James Lapine. I was very fortunate enough to – they were very different and both – Extraordinary. And how do you go from being in one production and playing the same role with a completely different set of people, different physical production, yeah. different director? Yeah. How much did you have to adjust? Well, you know, it, honestly, because James Lapine came to Hartford Stage and saw it, and clearly when we were in the studio in New York working for the uh, for the Weisler's production, 
he kind of let me do what I was doing. I just had a different frock and different set and different actors to work with. And they were the lovely three gentlemen who originated it, Steve Bogardis, Michael Rupert, and Chip Zion. And they were, you know, incredibly generous and uh, open and kind. And, you know, that was probably not easy for them. I mean, they had their own history with the piece and felt very attached to it. Um, and I'm the new girl, um, but they were they were generous in it, and it was it, we had a ball. It, it, you know, there were few, few weeks of like, okay, them getting to know me, me getting to know them. But after a while, we just kind of flew together and and really beautifully. It was a wonderful experience. Well, you were the only member of the company in Hartford to make the transition to New York. That's right. Now you work as Harrison with a totally different cast. That's right. And the director has said to you, well, do your thing, do it the way you're accustomed. Yeah. But certainly, working with different actors that must affect your performance. You must have to adjust to them. They adjust to you because well, yours is a different performance probably than the other women who had done the role previously yeah just by the nature of me doing it you know right. i mean the, the material is right. always different in different hands obviously um i mean i guess you know as a song through musical uh it, it you know you, you still have to listen you still have to adjust to you know a new mendel you know i had adam heller who i adore a dear friend in hartford stage very different from chip I mean, had, yeah, I mean, they had similar physical and sim- similar um, humor aspects, comedy aspects. Um, but, but I, I mean, I, I can't, I can't say specifically what I did different from one to the other. But I think it's a listening thing. I mean, that really depends. That that's that's going to define your work, how you're listening to another actor. Uh, and in this case, a singer, but that always felt like a play. The thing mm-hmm. about falsettos, even though it was sung through, it always felt like a play to me, which is a really wonderful thing about the writing, I think. When you take a role out of town, you, certainly you've had these great experiences with Cincinnati and with Hartford where they became springboards to these these major Broadway appearances for you. Yet there are other shows that we look at and that you've done regionally that were new musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, every time there's a new musical, everybody always seems to have their sights on Broadway. I'm looking at The Rhythm Club at Signature or mm-hmm. Houdini at Goodspeed. Mm-hmm. Were those shows that you took simply for work or were those shows that you took because you were hoping for more life out of them? Well, after a certain point, you get to an age where you're only going to a regional theater in the hopes that it's going to create a buzz and a transfer, really. You don't just go to the regional theater to make a dime. <laughs> um, so, you know, and and uh, those two shows, let's see, Houdini, there was there was talk, and there were pr- producers always come down to these places, especially like someplace like The Good Speed or The Signature, Eric Schaefer's fabulous theater down there in Arlington, you know. Um, and yeah, there, there was that actually was going to move. Um, Beth and Alan Williams were the producers, and you know we were sort of contracted through from signature through to Broadway with a, a stint in Chicago, um, and then it kind of fell apart. And then nine eleven happened, and it really fell apart. And you know, so these things fall apart like all the time. Um, so I, I feel very uh, fortunate, and you know that that I. And part of an experience where, wow, it worked. <laughs> it worked out a couple times, you know. Uh, it's kind of a remarkable thing. I did Ragtime in Chicago, and that that was, I did Mother in that, and, and that was, uh, you know, a production contract like a, a Broadway contract has. But it was in Chicago. I replaced Donna Bullock when she came in to replace Marin Maisie here on Broadway. And I had the most delicious, wonderful time with that, but not a lot of people saw that, you know. Um, that was it was supposed to be a year and it was seven months because of that Garth Drabinsky thing. But anyway, it's a whole other hour of conversation, isn't it? 
Um, yeah, it's like a pink slip over my head for seven months. But that was a remarkable experience. I love doing that role. I love that piece. Um, it was just very grand and fantastic. Is replacing is rewarding? I mean, you're saying such effusive things because, of course, you also did several years as as Velma in Two and a half in years, yeah. No, no re- replacing is not really um, what you want to do. It's not the ideal. However, if you're about to lose your apartment <laughs> and you get to replace um, a role on Broadway, you take it. Uh, and then you... Um, you know, renovate your kitchen and put crown molding up. <laughs> and and when, when you have a two and a half year run and a yeah. very good part in the well, hit show. Well, here's the thing. I didn't have to go out of town with that. I had two weeks of rehearsals. I came in right after they won the Tony. I was in a hit show. I mean, that's remarkable mm-hmm. right there. And so I would, that was just divine. It was, it was a fantastic it, job and a, so much fun with so many great people. And you also get to see your husband every night. You're not in Chicago. That's right. Or Cincinnati. That's right. <laughs> that has that certain advantages. The certain, definitely the icing on the cake. I mean, let's let's, let's, talk, let's talk, talk about home life, your early home life. You grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. Right Chevy outside, Chase, Maryland. Chevy Chase, yes. right outside of Washington. That's right. Large family. Eight of us, four girls and four boys. How did yes. you get into showbiz to begin with? Let's see. Um, in high school, you know, I went to a Catholic girls' school visitation, and my girlfriend Michelle Maloney, sister of Chris Maloney, on uh, Law and Order, hmm. SVU, SUV, whatever. S- SVU. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm, I'm a name dropper, and I spent the night at her house in Arlington, Virginia. And Chris was like 14, very shy but very cute. <laughs> and here he is. It's just hilarious to me. Anyway. So I, I say to Michelle, um, why don't we go audition for Hello, Dolly at St. John's? Because they invite all the Catholic girls' schools to and audition. how old were you? I was um, 16-ish. And she said, okay, let's go audition for Hello, Dolly. She gets Dolly Levi, and I'm in the chorus. And that was mm-hmm. the beginning. And then after that, there was the production of Fiddler on the Roof, and I sang very badly but really wanted to be Huddle, and I wasn't cast. And my sister yelled at the director. And then they called me when someone um, canceled, uh, someone backed out of that Fiddler on the Roof, and then I was asked to be one of the girls, and then I got to audition within the rehearsal process for for Miss Sarah, and I got that. So that was the beginning of performing, you know, on stage when I wasn't, making up scenes and with invisible <laughs> characters in my bedroom <laughs> after mm-hmm. school or singing top of my lungs in the hallway or mimicking people um Joni Mitchell and and uh, Joan Diner 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 Man of La Mancha That's the one um <laughs> not that was attempt to correct <laughs> That you, was my uh, you my say high Diener, school I say Diner yeah, right. potato potato <laughs> who knows <laughs> So uh, so that was the high school uh, experience of performance. Um, and then college was a two-year community college in Rockville, Maryland, where I, I did all kinds of roles, Annie Sullivan and uh, Lady Macbeth and uh, Mona and Dames at Sea and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful roles. And then after that, I went right into dinner theater. That's my grad work, where I played a, a whole variety of Fiona and uh, Aldonza and Winifred and Mattress, and, and it got a lot of wonderful experience there. But at intermission, I served a cocktail. That's mm-hmm. dinner theater for you. That was a fascinating part of my life. You know, you're 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 waiting tables, and you hear. And it's an elderly person who's fallen into their plate of food from the buffet line. I kid you not. It happened all the time. Oh it's an insanity. But we had a blast. So, yeah. And then I moved to New York in 80. 
And in my extensive research, I read somewhere that in one production, you even had to clean the men's room urinals. Out. That was um, Summer Stock at the Wagon Wheel Playhouse. <laughs> Faith Prince and I did um, Pippin, mm-hmm. um, the summer of 79. And um, I was en route to getting my equity card at the Lincolnshire with Carrie Walker, who I knew from the dinner theater days. And he was going to give me my union card. And... Um, but first, I, 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 after I left the Harlequin, I went to Wagon Wheel to play Lady Chiang in, in King and I and Catherine and Pippin and Chorus in something or other and for like $75 a week. But they had these things on strike. You know, you had to pitch in, and I, Faith and I were cleaning out the men's urinals. It was really fascinating and somewhat horrifying and then we'd be on the unemployment line in the 80s you know before she was faith prince and <laughs> i don't know who i was and we, we <laughs> just remember laughing about wagon wheel playhouse and then in but nine, a lot of people went there and then in 1982 you joined the musicians union local 802 for the that's first right. of three times when that's you made correct. your broadway debut that's right in a show called rock and roll the first five thousand years where i faked a bass <laughs> for the go-go's song um can you hear me i'm talking about uh, i got the beat I don't know if it's that. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the song. Talking about it. I can't remember what it was. It's all a, a blur. But I, I, w- I had to fake a bass. So because I was even holding the instrument, I had to join the local 802. Just fine. As long even as though the, you couldn't play it. Even though I couldn't play yeah, it. Yeah, yeah there was a band didn't. behind me playing the real thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really, that was like a music event that should have been at the Beacon or, a, you know, not a Broadway theater. Mm. But um, it was sort of a child of Beatlemania kind it, of it exactly right. Exactly right. And a documentary sort of spanning rock and roll from the 50s up to the police, the early 80s. Mm. And the whole evening ended with message in a bottle. And it was very exciting and, and then daunting when we were going to close two weeks later. We previewed for ever, but that was my first taste of Broadway at the St. James Theater. And that's where you got to sing Grace Slick and Joan Baez. That's right. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you... Yeah, I did, <laughs> did that and did... Um, <clears throat> um, Oh, God has that song of forever young, little Joan Baez, and and you know there was there was Cher, there were other people in there that I that I did, <laughs> and there was there was that, and uh, yeah, a lot of um, forbidden Broadway in between, and uh, and then you went into nine as a replacement. I went into nine as a replacement in eighty four, I think. I did uh-huh. six months on Broadway, then I did six months on the road, and then uh, again I went back into forbidden Broadway and. I don't know. It's so long ago. You've got the list there. Well, let's talk about Forbidden Broadway. <laughs> okay. Which had to be a hoot, didn't it? We're working with Gerardo It was a Sandrini. riot. And I have to just tell you very funnily, since you've seen Company now, mm-hmm. um, he came to the show and I came out and he asked for my autograph and we laughed about that. And he just. This is Gerard. Yes. And he loved it. He absolutely loved the show. And who is the creator of Forbidden the Broadway? Cre- yes. He's the creator of Forbidden Broadway and has been for 20 years or whatever. And it's this, he's a genius parody writer and I said oh I'm so excited you've seen this and now that you have what are you going to do for me you know I did your show for a year and a half and um, he says I don't know I don't know and I said well I have an idea Um, what if you have Joanne like in my get up and with her arm up and like a Corinthian white column just stuck to it she just walks around because you've designed your own costume for Forbidden Broadway I have (laughs) Alvin Cole's got a call yeah just, just Stuck up to the armpit like that. I just thought that would be hilarious. He liked the idea, but he, he you know, has to use his own ideas. Um, yes, I had a blast. That was like the time of my life. 
in a dressing room much smaller than this room, four of us changing costumes. And I remember one time my wig, my Ethel Merman wig, got caught up my skirt or my cheetah wig did or something. I mean, it was mayhem and hilarity all at the same time. Well, which, which famous ladies did you portray besides Merman? I did them all. Oh, uh, Julie Andrews and um, Ethel, and he wrote Streisand for me because I, I wrote a Streisand for my own show, a Barbra Streisand in the musical version of Out of Africa, which is kind of hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> so I did that for him, for Gerard, and he wrote me um, What's on the Forbidden Broadway album. And um, there's a show for me. I think that's what it is. Um and who else did I do? Uh, Julie Andrews, Bernadette Peters, uh, Patti LuPone. I mean, yeah, all of them. Mm-hmm. I did them all. Well, let's listen to one of the cuts. Uh, your, your, your Barbara Streisand uh, impersonation in Forbidden Broadway. Okay. From one of many of the Forbidden Broadway albums, the series created by Gerard Alessandrini that is technically called Barbara the Broadway Album a take off on Barbara Streisand's wonderful Broadway album done by Barbara Walsh our guest today on Downstage Center as we've been talking Barbara we're talking about shows that were all had been produced in some way before you were involved in them either earlier productions or their revivals so coming to big must have been a great opportunity because there was your opportunity to create a role truly originating. in a new musical. Can you can you talk a little about about that part, which is not an enormous part in the show, but got so much attention? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, the mother in the film it's played by uh, Mercedes Rule, right? Yes. So she, it's a pivotal moment when Josh wakes up and he's a grown man and she freaks out, and that was sort of my big scene. Um, in the first act, and there actually was a song called Say Good Morning to Mom, which was wonderful. It was cut in Detroit, but it had a great sort of say good morning to mom. It it sort of defined the ordinariness and the ho-hum aspect of a housewife doing laundry. And to me, really... The second act song of Stop Time would have been more potent and powerful had that first act song not been cut. But that, I'm I'm really not angry about it anymore. It was a long, long time ago. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're in Detroit and you're working on a br- brand new Broadway show and numbers are getting cut left and right and Krista Moore has a new song every night, literally, you know, th- there is that part of the experience that, you know, is is somewhat frightening and exciting at the same time. Um, so it evolved into a lot of things. Um, I was very fortunate to be in the room with all those people. They're astonishing, all of them. Um, I had a great song. It was always a pleasure to sing that beautiful song. Um, and, um, I, and you know, I, I wish it had, had run longer. It, um, I was planning our wedding, buying an apartment, and hoping it would stay open while I was buying the apartment. Yeah, it's a Broadway show. No, it's never going to close. It closed a week before we got married. <laughs> but we moved into the apartment. So that's how, you know, that evolved. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's you know, a really wonderful and uh, scary experience that, you know, I, I hope uh, had worked out better than it did. Being on a Broadway show makes it kind of hard to plan one's life, not to mention one's wedding. That's absolutely right. But when you're doing Mrs. Baskin, who doesn't have that much stage time, it's perfect. 
You're in your dressing room. It's your downtime. You're calling. You're on the phone. You're taking a nap before your big number in the second act. Can't do that in a John Duo production, not when you're on stage the entire time, you know. Let's talk about uh, about uh, David Shire, Richard Walby, who wrote, yeah. wrote the score for it, and they wrote yeah. a song for you, which we have alluded to. I'm going to play it in a yeah. second. But tell us about the experience of working with the two of them and just how the song was created, the whole bit. Um, you know, I think, actually, Liz Calloway had recorded the song before I even heard it. Um, I, I, I don't know how many workshops and readings were done before I was brought on board, but I think uh, maybe a couple years worth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so when I first heard the song, I mean, it was it was perfect. You know, it didn't need any rewrite or anything like that. It was just clearly said exactly what the character, you know, she's lost her son and she misses him and she'd give anything to have the ordinary in her life. She'd give anything to have him back and he's growing so quickly and she's missing it all because he's not there. I mean, stop time. I mean, what a wonderful idea um, for so, a parent. But the song had been written years before the show. Um, I, I, I mean, I think before we went into Broadway, it had been in, because in, it were, had been in workshop, they, right? There was they this, were developing it. Right, exactly. Uh -huh. A certain amount of the score had already been developed and written and clearly was there to stay. And, um, you know, I, I think that was smart of them to leave stop time the way it was. Um, and uh, David and... Uh, um, <laughs> Thank you, Richard. I'm sorry. Junior, little, Richard Malpey Jr. Had a little, <laughs> you know, senior moment myself. Um, <laughs> they were just the loveliest men, and mm -hmm. uh, and Paul Gimignani as well, as he uh, was very uh, behind me in my interpretation of it and whatnot um, as conductor and, and working on it in, in the rehearsal studio. Yeah, they were wonderful. They were all wonderful to me. I mean, I you know, I was very well taken care of, and I think... They, f I, I felt that they felt lucky to have me, and that's always a really great feeling, you know. So they well, were well, let's listen to you as okay. Mrs. Baskin, the mother, right. near the top, not at the top, but near the top of the second act of Big, the musical. Stop time. Barbara Walsh from Big, the musical, and Stop Time, the song that she sang in the show that closed just a, a week before your wedding. That's right. Barbara, we keep obliquely talking about things like your wedding. Uh, John mentioned theatrical family. I do want to ask about the experience of you working to find roles, to get roles, when things have worked on Broadway and not. And, of course, when you go home, there is your husband, Jack Cummings III, right. who has started his own off-off-Broadway theater company, The Transport Group. Yes. How in your professional career has what Jack has been trying to do with the transport company, how much do they intersect? How much are you really on your own tracks? Well, I mean, it's interesting because we, ever since we met, we were always going down the same road together. Um, uh, and I mean that in, in every way, even though he was a good 13 years younger than me. Um, we met in the summer of 95. He was assisting Julie Boyd. Uh, up in the Berkshires at Great Barrington Stage Company, and I was big was postponed seven months. So because of that, I was free for the summer, and I went up to do this music review, Alice Revisited, and he and I just connected, and we were engaged four months later. So uh, before I ever saw his work as a director, 
you know, we got married. And as as somebody in the business, you didn't think maybe I should check out his work? No, no? I just knew. I knew there was something really sublime about this man, not just as a director or an artist, but as a human being. And our backgrounds were similar. And we just were going after the same thing um, artistically and uh, and in life in general, spiritually and otherwise. And uh, so that was the connect. And... Um, you know, he, he I knew he would eventually begin his own theater company. We always talked about that. And it happened with his first production of uh, uh, Our Town, where he cast George and Emily in their 60s. Barbara Andres and Tom Ligon <clears throat> played uh, Emily and George, and, and the stage manager was a 15-year-old girl. And it had this wonderful, resonant age reversal thing that, that was very powerful. It got some wonderful reviews. And so that was the kickoff production, and um, that was six years ago. And so it's still pretty new, young company, non-for-profit, which is very challenging in this city. Um, he, you know, I don't want to compare him with John Doyle, but there is an aesthetic that's very similar. The pared-down sort of unconventional way of doing things is is what I think they're, they, they have in common, and the taste factor you know, it's very elegant. It's also very bold. There's there's something very, um, you know, they're both visionaries. I'll be quite honest. That's the truth. And 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 Jack is, you know, he's on his way. I'm. It's. It, I don't know how long it will take. Whatever it is, but he will always be driven by his ideas and uh, his instincts, and they're very powerful. And he, you know, he created a musical called The Audience. His concept. Forty six actors. You talk about utopia with forty actors. I'm very happy for you all. But my husband conceived of this musical of an audience seeing a Broadway show right before it closes, and it was all these different, uh, you know, cliched characters coming together in this space to see a Broadway show, and they all had different responses, and they all had inner lives, and it had 36 different writers writing for free, Michael John Cusa being one of it, he's a huge fan, huge fan of Jack's work, Michael John being writer of uh, so many amazing things, Marie Christine and Wild Party, and, and I did Hello Again with him briefly at Lincoln Center. Um, so, you know, he, he just has uh, a way of seeing these ideas come to fruition, and uh, he's he's extraordinary, and it's just a matter of time, and I'll be really happy when he has an office, because my living room is closing in on me. <laughs> All of the theater company, you know, it's like, <clears throat> but I'm being a very patient wife, and I know there's, you know, a non-for-profit uh, it's all about fundraising. We all know about that. But he has a gala every year, and every year the the audience expands and the attention grows. He had a uh, recently he did a revival of All the Way Home, the Tad Mosel Pulitzer winning uh, play, stunning, based on the James Agee death in the family. It was absolutely glorious and wonderfully well received critically. Um, so he is on his way, and I don't know what it will take, but it's soon. And you've you've done one show for him? Well, I did one musical here last year, a production called Normal. Very challenging original piece about a woman dealing with her daughter's anorexia. Um, but the first production I ever did with Jack was, uh, we did Streetcar together. I did Blanche at the Mount Gretna Playhouse in the summer after we were married in 97. So we were married in uh, fall of 96. So the next summer we, we did that, and I had... Uh, it was only a three-week run. I didn't even nearly get enough of that, but it was the most wonderful experience. And, and we just have our own light language, and we understand each other's head. And, uh, and yeah, we did normal, and it was incredibly rewarding in so many ways. Now, being married to a director, and you're in rehearsal for a show, whether it be company or anything else, yeah. and you're trying to work out some of the, the, 
the things about your performance? Do you ever right. ask him for input? Does he ever volunteer to give you notes on your performance? Or do you not want to talk shop at home? Oh, you mean like would he give me notes on company? On, on any show, company being the most recent example. Oh, well, but- well, he'll always chime in something if he feels he... That if he feels I should hear something, uh-huh. um, he doesn't really give me. No- he hasn't given me notes on company. He knows I'm in very good hands, and With you John know, Darwin. yeah, he adores his work. <clears throat> and he, uh, there, there, there's never really been a, any um, any note giving there. But yes, he he often will say, you know, maybe you could such and such, or have you thought of such and such, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I'll either say none of your beeswax, or <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll can, think about it. <laughs> so it can be helpful being married to a director. Oh yeah, can pay off. Oh yeah, more I know. I know one, he's sure. annoyed when we're in rehearsal and I call him honey. He hates that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Honey, Try the, to be good. honey, the director. That's right. Yeah. It's getting better, though. Well, you're in company now. What do you want to do in the future? Well, my, I, I was telling John Duell just the other night. I, I my hope is that uh, uh, this kind of changes the perception of me in the world of theater, uh, people who have power and and work and whatnot. That I'm, you know, not just a contemporary neurotic mom. I think people now, hopefully, I, I, I saying that I don't want to be just a matronly, sexy alcoholic for the rest mm-hmm. of my life either. <laughs> you know, I, I want people to think out of the box for me. But here you are in a leading lady role, probably <clears throat> for the first time in a, in a major Broadway show. Falsettos, I was the leading lady, but no one knew me. Mm-hmm. People know me now, mm-hmm. and it's actually a supporting role. Uh-huh. But the history gives makes it a leading lady. Mm. And funny you should say that because on the way to opening night, they'd given me a car. And very lovely, and I was thinking to myself, I feel like a leading lady. Cut to the the party opening night. George Firth says to me, your life's going to change. You're a leading lady now. And I just thought, well, that's lovely synchronicity, isn't it, that I thought that just a few hours ago. It was just really kind of sweet. But, you know, my hope is is great roles. Um, And I would like to do stories about me. I, I love the supporting roles, but I really, if I am a leading lady, then give me a leading lady role. Are you listening? <laughs> well, for all the producers who are listening, <laughs> email us, and we'll, we'll, get the, we'll get the email on to Barbara. And to uh, you, Barbara Walsh, we say thank you for being with us it's today. It's my pleasure. On Downstage Center. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.